Hey, good evening. How are y'all doing? Good, great. That's awesome. Good. Oh, hey. Yeah, that's good. Um, hey, so we're in Revelation tonight. Uh, uh, Josh read the first chapter uh, earlier before we began. Some of y'all cheered. Y'all were like, yeah, Revelation. Uh, this was actually the most voted for topic. We're in that series of doing what people voted for. Uh, and y'all voted for this more than anything else. Uh, and we are actually, this is going to be a two-parter. Um, I'm going to be doing this week uh, an introduction to, uh, to Revelation. And Terrell is going to answer all the crazy difficult questions next week that I can't answer. Um, Anyways, we're going to be in Revelation. Go ahead and open up. We're going to be in the first five chapters. We already read the first one. Uh, my job tonight is to try and create a lens for us to look through the, the entire book at. Uh, so uh, we're going to be in the first five chapters. The first five chapters are pertinent to that. Um, can we get the, the house lights on at least a, a little bit uh, so that people can, can read their Bibles? Oh, there we go. Yeah, because we're going to be reading a lot tonight. Um, oh, all the way on. Um, so we're going to be reading a, a lot tonight. Um, before we begin, though, uh, uh, just curious, who would say that they have a, a, a good grasp? Could you raise your hand if you say you have a, a good uh, grasp of the book of Revelation? What a humble group. I don't have my hand raised either. Um, but what a humble group. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult book. Uh, let me ask you another question. How many of you have read a book, any of the books, from the Left Behind series? Okay, a number of you. A number of you. Okay. And I'm just, I'm just curious. So, yeah, just curious. Um, all right. What do you, uh, gonna have to, a few of you are going to have to give me some answers. What do you think of when I say the book of Revelation? What are some things you think of? Go ahead, say them out loud. Tribulation, pearly gates. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One at a time now. One at a time. Hold on. Well, I'm just giving you a hard time. What did you say, Jenny? Hell storms. Hail storms. That was hail storms, not hell storms. Hail storms. Okay, what else? Anything else? Seven. Horses? You mean the four horsemen? Okay, there we go. All right. Seven churches, yeah. Okay, all right. So um, some of the stuff that comes to mind is the, is the crazy stuff, which uh, I'm serious, we're probably not going to get into tonight. The beast, the antichrist, uh, hell storms or whatever. Uh, we're probably not going to get into. We're going to be looking more at uh, the seven churches in the beginning, chapters two and three, um, and not into some of the crazier stuff. I'm going to leave that all for Terrell. Um, he's going to answer all those questions, maybe. Um, Anyways, uh, tonight, uh, there is a lot to cover. I'm going to try and go quickly. I have way too many notes, more than I've ever had. So I'm going to be going quickly. Um, and I'm going to leave a lot of stuff out. You're going to have more questions and answers probably at the end because you're going to look at it and go, wait, what is this? And he didn't talk about that because there's too much in there. There's so much in there. We really need like a whole semester, if not an entire school year, to cover Revelation. And I'm going to try and do what I can to give you an introduction to it. Um, so, uh, yeah, but we already read chapter 1. Let me give you, give you uh, an introduction. So this is written by John, uh, the apostle. This is written in about 95, maybe 96 A.D. Uh, John is the last living disciple of Jesus. The rest have all been martyred. The rest are dead. 
Um, and he's on the island of Patmos is what he says. He's been exiled there. And actually, uh, in church history, church history teaches that the Romans uh, tried to kill John before this, that they boiled him in oil, and he survived. And then they just were like, we're done with you. And they shipped him here um, with prisoners. Uh, and that's church history. That's not in scripture. But he is the last one. He is the last one. Uh, and he is uh, using, he will use uh, literally hundreds of Old Testament allusions and references. Uh, too many. There are too many. He will not stop. Every time, you know, in that description of Jesus with his eyes are on fire and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, um, you know, that's, those are all references to Isaiah, the Psalms, Daniel, Ezekiel. Uh, it's just all over the place and he won't stop and I can't go over them all. It's ridiculous. He keeps doing it again and he won't quit. Um, uh, and so he, he uses a lot of symbol as well. You know what? You know, Jesus is walking around with a sword coming out of his mouth. You know, he is able to destroy his enemies with a word. That's what that means. It's not walking around with a, you know, awkwardly with a sword hanging out of his mouth. Um, and so he, he does this all the time, and numbers are used. Like, you know, this is, this is to specific people, the seven churches in Asia. And really, this is Asia Minor. Uh, common day, this is, this is the country of Turkey. Where all these cities are currently located, um, and he, you know he'll say seven, uh, and really what he means is completeness. He means wholeness. There aren't seven churches only in, in Asia Minor and Turkey. There are more. If you read Colossians, uh, Colossae is like right next to all these churches, but he doesn't mention them here. I don't know why. What he wants is completeness. You know, and he mentions the seven spirits of God. We don't worship whole, seven holy spirits, all right? Father, Son, and seven holy spirits. We worship the Holy Spirit. And seven is this completeness. The complete power of the Spirit is with Jesus. That's what that means. And that's going to happen throughout numbers like that. Um, it's going to happen a bit. A bit. Um, so let's, uh, let me see. I'm going to be looking at my notes a bit. Uh, all right, so open up. We're going to begin, we're going to begin in chapter uh, 2. Go ahead and open it, look at chapter 2. Uh, there are seven letters, or what they're called, they're really like messages, that Jesus gives to seven of those individual churches. Um, I do, we do not have enough time to cover all of them, and I apologize. I wish we could. I've chosen three. The first two that I've chosen, I believe, are very pertinent to this group right here, this room and this church in this country. Um, this book is not just for the future. Most people try and decode stuff that's in here. It's not meant for that. It's meant for us right now, and it's meant for the church here, these seven churches right then. That's what it's meant for. Um, and so we're going to look at that. The two of them that are pertinent and another one, uh, a third church we're going to look at, which we will have a hard time identifying with, Smyrna, because they're being persecuted. I want you to look and see uh, the times that they are living in, that these churches are living in, so we can get a better understanding of the rest of the book of Revelation. But we have to get their mindset. And then also some of this directly applies to us as well, what they're going through. It hasn't changed throughout the ages. These seven churches, these issues they're dealing with, we deal with them too, all over the world all over the world. So the first one um, is the church at Ephesus. So we're going to start there in a second. Um, just so you know, there are a few things that happen in every single message, especially if you, if you I'm going to say this in case you, you look at the other ones later. Uh, first of all, uh, John is going to start with a description from the first chapter of Jesus, like bronze feet, 
the sword coming out of his mouth. He'll start with that description. Uh, the second thing he'll do is he'll, he'll reveal, Jesus will reveal his knowledge of the church. Uh, and he will give praise and rebuke where he sees fit. Uh, a third thing he'll do um, is he'll tell them to listen. Listen to what the Spirit has to say. Uh, a fourth thing he'll do is uh, he'll tell each and every church to conquer or persevere. Um, and then he will, another thing, one last thing he will do is he will give them a promise. He will promise them something. Uh, each, it's different for each of them individually, and it comes true or it happens again at the last vision uh, in Revelation 21, 22. We won't get to it, but a promise he makes each of the churches comes again at the end, at the fulfillment. So I want you to know that because uh, that's going to be the layout of every single one that we look at. So let me flip this real quick. So I'm going to read. Uh, yeah, hold on. Nope. Yeah, that's where I want to be. Revelation chapter two, and we're going to look at the first, the first church, Ephesus. So that's verses one through uh, seven. Let me go ahead and read this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up with my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so, so, this church, the Ephesian church, uh, Jesus has some great things to say about them, some good things. He says that uh, you know, they have a zeal for the word, a deep zeal for God's word. They hate evil. They've tested uh, false teachers and found them wrong. They rebuked them. Uh, at this time, it is very common for teachers and apostles, and people who call themselves apostles anyways, would go to churches and preach and say they have a word from God. It the church would just let someone in and say, okay, you're an apostle, you're a teacher with a word from God, come on in. And we, we don't do that here. We very seldom have visiting pastors come in. And when we do, it's someone we know well. That's for good reason. But they would hear what they had to say. They would hear what they had to say. Actually, in, in Acts, that's exactly what Paul does. He started some of these churches, and he did it that way, going to these towns, preaching in these synagogues and temples, and starting churches. And actually, there's a, there's a group he goes to called the Bereans in Acts, and they are commended for not believing Paul at first. They don't quite believe him at face value. And it says that they search the Scriptures, they search the scriptures every single day to see if what Paul said was true. And they are commended for that, and they found it to be true. Jesus is the Christ. They found it to be true. 
And so they are commended for not just believing what he said at first. And they are, we are called to do the same. You're not, you're called to question what I, what I, what I teach you, what Terrell teaches you. Whoever your pastor is back at home, what they teach you. Well, just take it, look and see. Examine the word. See if what they say is true. Um, you know, you're supposed to check. And they, this group is commended for that as well. They're commended for that. So false teachers, these are called Nicolaitans, is what they're called here. They're identified as here. Uh, we actually don't know a whole lot about this group. This group died out pretty quick. But they, they have plagued some of the other churches. Other churches have bought into their beliefs. So uh, we don't quite know what that is. But most likely, most likely, it is uh, a teaching that encourages people to, to worship the emperor, to take part in pagan feasts uh, and idol worship, to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Um, at this time, at this time, emperor worship is considered mandatory and refusal is considered uh, punishable by death. Um, and so uh, we believe, or I believe, that, that this group, Nicolaitans, are going church to church saying that it's actually, it's okay. Like, you, you, it's okay to, you know, to worship, you know, Caesar. It's okay to worship the emperor. It's okay. And you know what they would do is it was only, it was only once a year they would go up to uh, the altar. It's a big thing of coals. They would take a little a pinch of incense and they would drop it in there. And then they would say, Caesar is Lord. And then they'd walk away. They wouldn't have to do it for a whole other year. And they'd maybe teach that, that, hey, you know, that's just something you're saying with your words. In your heart you believe, you know, in Jesus. But you're just, you have to say this. Otherwise they're going to kill you. Otherwise this is going to happen. Otherwise you won't be able to work. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to do this. And that is, that is a lie. That is a lie, and that is, that is possibly what they, are, what they are teaching, is that it's okay to worship the emperor. That's, you know, that's, you know, what you worship Jesus in your heart and what you do with your actions is different. It's okay. Um, and that's a false teaching, and they have denied it. They have denied it, and Jesus commends them for it. But what, what is wrong with this church? There's something that, that is a problem that Jesus calls them out, and he's not happy. He says, where is your love? The love that you had at first. Where's the love that you had at first? And I believe he means, he means love for one another. And I know some of you have, you've gotten into, when you first became a Christian, uh, like this group, they all loved each other at first, and you get to know a group, and you get close with them, and then what happens? You get to know other people in the group that you don't like, other people that frustrate you, maybe somebody wrongs you, Maybe somebody sins against you. You grow cold. You won't let go of your pride. And I, I say all this because that's an issue that's in here. It's in this room. And I, you've heard me address this many times this past year if you've been coming here. I address this almost every time. And it is an issue here. Their love has gone cold for each other and in turn for Jesus. For your love to go cold towards someone else in this room, a few pews over that you don't like, is for your love to grow cold to Jesus. And it is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. You cannot do that. You cannot operate that way. It is not what we are called to. We are called to forgive. We are called to love. To care for people the way we did when we first became Christians. That's what he's calling them to. Their love has grown cold. But they've got, they've got a zeal for the word. They're doing works. You know, they're denying uh, these false teachers. That happens here, too. People here are, you know, you're, you're in the middle of discipleship. You're going through the Word. You're going through sound teaching. You're praising God. Uh, maybe you're going to adopt a building. You're doing all these things. But then, 
What about this person that you can't stand who's sitting right over here? And that's exactly what he is calling them out on. And that's exactly why I wanted to cover this church. It is an issue. It is an issue here. That we might, we're called to repent. And I'm going to continue to address it as long as it's an issue because Jesus says he's going to remove our lampstand if he does. Now let me, let, me, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what that means because he says that to several churches. Um, this, uh, this summer, I am going to England with my wife. Uh, my wife's English. She's fancy. Uh, she's got an English family over there. Uh, and we're, we're going to, you know, see family. And we're also going to do some touristy things. And we're, we're probably going to see some really lovely, old, magnificent churches. Lovely churches that have been around for hundreds of years. And those churches are empty. They are empty. Religion uh, in England is in a textbook. They are empty. I, I say they're empty. They're filled with tourists like me. That's who's in those churches. Their lampstand is gone. Their light does not shine in that church. There are, there are Christians. Actually, the, in, in England, the house churches are really thriving right now. But those old churches, they're empty. They're empty. Their lampstand is gone. Jesus has removed it for one reason or another. It's gone, and that is scary. And that happens here. It happens in this town. Um, the last couple of years, I got to know a, a pastor here at another church. I won't say which one. Um, and he and I would meet sometimes, and he would, every time we would meet, he would say, Andrew, I feel like you know, the Holy Spirit is not in my church. Every time I preach, every time I'm there, it's like, it's absolutely dead. And he left. He's gone now. He felt every time he was there, it was dead. That happens even here. It happens here, okay? It's not just some other people. That happens here, and if people are bitter against one another here, like some of the Ephesians, it'll happen here too. Who wants to be a part of a church with with divisions, bitterness, happen here too. I pray against it, and I'm going to continue to address it until it's no longer an issue. And it may always be an issue, but we're told to conquer over that. Going for a bit, I've got I've got two more churches to go. Let's let's continue. Let's continue. We're going to skip ahead to the last church mentioned, um, and I want to go to this one because I believe it pertains to us. We're going to go to a church in Laodicea. That's in chapter three. Verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. Let me read this. Oh, by the way, when it says to the angel of the church, um, angel literally translates as messenger, so it's not like Jesus is like, the P, I mean, excuse me, John has the P.O. box for like an angel. Um, I believe it's, it's messengers. Um, just because I know that's probably a question that you might have had. Anyways, um, verse 14. Uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, or the, the source of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve 
to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is by far the worst of the notes, the little messages Jesus has for the seven churches. He has nothing good to say to this church. Absolutely nothing. They're not commended for, you know, having love or, you know, believing in a teaching or persevering. They got nothing good to say to them. Nothing. And it is, it is haunting. It is convicting. This church is, this church right here is broken. And I, I cannot think of another letter, another church described in here that fits the American church more than this. And people even, some, and I don't think it's our, our greatest issue, but in this room, this right here. This right here. Let me tell you what their issue was. Their faith was in their possessions. Their faith was in this world. This is the richest city in, this enti- in that entire area the absolute richest city. In 60 AD, there was an earthquake that completely destroyed the city. And they didn't ask Rome for help. They bankrolled the entire rebuilding with their own gold. They are real rich. Real rich. They've got six miles of concrete uh, that that takes uh, uh, cold water from the springs in the south all the way up to their city. That's a multi-million dollar project in our day. And they, they pay for it on their own. They're very rich. And by the way, that you know, six miles cold water traveling through concrete this wide eventually gets lukewarm. It's lukewarm. And Jesus is actually speaking to this church very directly. Very directly. He's saying things that pertain to them. He says, buy salve, get salve from me for your eyes. Because they are, they are uh, infamous for their incredible medical school and for the eye salve that comes out of their city that they sell. And he says, buy it from me. Their gold, the eye salve, the clothing. He is pointing to how rich they are. They are very rich. And all their hope is in their goods. All their hope is in their own advancement that they have. And he says, you don't even know how broken you are. You don't even know. And that is, let me tell you, that is prominent where we live. And prominent here. There are individuals here who your faith is in your goods. Your faith is in your money. Some of you have come to school here so that you can get a good job and make a lot of money. And there's nothing wrong with that. The question is, where is your heart? Is it because you need money to survive or is you need money to feel secure? That's a serious question. Most of you are going to have to face that because most of you, when you're going to college, you're going to make decent money, not good money. What are you going to do with that? Where's your heart in that? There's nothing wrong with making good money. What are you going to do with it? Where's your heart in that? I know, I know people who make a lot of money and they just give it all away. I know people who live on a tenth of their income and they bankroll churches being built, schools, orphanages, people who make a lot of money and they live on very little and you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know. And they float. It's, it's city impact. You've heard me talk about that some. There have been years in their past where they couldn't even pay people. 
And this man just, you know, what do you need? You need 20 grand, you need 50 grand, just writing checks. No big deal. And that actually happens here at this church. You know, most of our, even most of our population here is college students. And so you don't have a lot of money, and that's okay. That's just fine. And there are people who just bankroll this church. You know, we're worried about budget, and somebody writes a $25,000 check. It's like, what? There's nothing wrong with making money. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And are you worshiping it? What is, why do you want a great job? Is it just for the money? Is it so that you can build up wealth for yourself? That is going to fail. That is going to fail. And, and Jesus is nauseated with this church. They make him sick. They're making him sick. And they do not realize how wretched they are. Jesus meant it when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit who know that they are sinners, that they are in deep need. This group thinks that because they are financially sound, because they are well off, that God loves them and everything is good. And being, you know, blessed with money is a good, that's from God. But their, their faith is in that. They stand on that instead of the blood of Jesus. And that is not acceptable. It is not. What are you going to do with the money that you make? Why are you trying to make all that money? Is that where your security is coming from? Because it will secure you in this life. It will. Not the next one. It's definitely not the next one. Now these are stern words from Jesus. Very stern. But what does he say? He says, I rebuke those whom I love. He loves this group. They are making him nauseous, but he loves them. He loves this group. And he is knocking at the door of this church. Let me in. Let me into your church. And even now, the church is all over the place. He is, he is knocking, wanting to become a part of what they are doing. And right now, this church is just, it's just not. It's just not. And it is, it is sad. And it is, it is very convicting. Very convicting. Let me, uh, we've got, we've got, I know we've got, we've got like another church to cover in like two more chapters. We've got a lot to say. Um, let's go to the last church I want to cover. That's the church of Smyrna in chapter two. Chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 8. Let me get there in my notes. Um, so I want you to, uh, I want to cover this one uh, because I want you to understand the mindset of the people who are living in this time. I um, mean, some of them are dealing issue with issues with money and with divisions. Um, and many of the churches, though, are dealing with persecution. Where uh, other churches have gotten away with not having to worship uh, the emperor, this one hasn't. And I want you to see the mindset, because that's important. Because it's very important you see their mindset, because it pertains to the, all of Revelation, the whole thing. You need to see that. Let's read. It's going to be chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. But our synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, so this, when he says, by the way, when he says his church is poor, he means it. He means they're actually poor. And this, where they're at, uh, to actually work with the trade guilds, you had to take part in the pagan uh, feasts. So they literally could not work, or they couldn't work with what they were taught. So they had to work for almost nothing. They couldn't be a part of this big working group because work and politics and religion and power are all intermingled at this time. And they're just cut out from all of it here. They are actually poor. They are actually poor. And then Jesus says, some of you are about to go, about to be in prison for 10 days. And it doesn't just mean, it might mean literal 10 days. I mean, Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified in less than 24 hours, so 10 days. It may actually be 10 days. But what does he say? He says, excuse me, let me, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus expects them to be ready to die, and some of them will, and some of them already have. The next church we can't cover, Pergamum, uh, someone's already been killed. Uh, Jesus calls him by name, my faithful servant, Antipas. It's his name. He's already been killed. He's already been beheaded for not worshiping the emperor. And so this group is about to face it. He says, be ready to die. Be ready to die. And this isn't just now. This is all over. This applies everywhere. This applies not just at this time, but later. Um, there's a notorious, there's a, a famous uh, a bishop, Polycarp, uh, who was a bishop of Smyrna, who uh, 60 years after this, he would be burned at the stake for not worshiping the emperor. This continues on throughout history. They burned him alive. He was actually 86 years old. I actually got a quote of his last, his last words. He says, as they're about to burn him alive, 86 years I serve Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And they burned him alive, 86 for not worshiping the emperor. That's the, that's the mindset we need to understand as we look at this. As we look at this book, what this group is facing, the persecution that is in Revelation that they will be facing. Let's, uh, oh man, I've still got more to go. Um, so there is, there is this persecution that is happening and they are it is very important that we look to the next two chapters because that is what they are looking to. Four and five are the throne room of God. And that is what they are looking to. Polycarp was burned at the stake. Antipas, others who are being beheaded for not worshiping the emperor. That is what they are looking to. Um, and they are just being persecuted heavily. In fact, it, it, you know, Jesus in that, that last one says, he calls the Jews uh, there a synagogue of Satan. They're being persecuted um, and they are... There is nowhere to hide. Um, when, when Rome first took over, um, Judaism, the Jews were the only ones who were allowed to worship their own God. They were the only one who, uh, you know, they had a pass when it came to emperor worship because they, they knew that every single Jew would die before they worshiped the emperor. And they gave them a pass. There was a clause for them. And early Christianity was covered under this clause. They thought, oh, this is just a sect of Judaism. These are just some people who have, like, you know, they're weird kind of offspurt of Judaism. But the Jews pushed and pushed, and as this church grew, as the Christian church grew, they recognized, oh, this is not Judaism. This is something completely different. 
they do not worship the same. And so Jews are hunting them down, chasing them, and, and trying to get Roman officials to arrest them. They're facing serious persecution. Serious. Uh, I've, got, I've got to keep going. Um, let me, let me, we're gonna, I'm going to read chapter, we're going to start the throne room in just a second. Uh, so chapter 4, verse 1. I want to read this verse and pause and tell you something real controversial. Um, let me read this. Verse 1 of chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Um, this verse, the, the vision is about to change. Uh, John has been hearing directly from Jesus, and now a door is opened from in heaven, and Jesus says, Come up here. Come up here. And John is about to enter the throne room of God, and he's about to see something no one in this room has seen. He's about to get to partake in this incredible vision. Incredible vision. Uh, that's what's happening here. Now I say this is going to be controversial because if you've read Left Behind, um, the people who wrote Left Behind uh, believe that this verse yeah, it means the rapture. And some of you are probably wondering when the rapture, rapture happens. That's probably a question you maybe have. And it's not here. Um, I don't believe it's here. I look at this verse and I see John being ushered in to come into the throne room, not hundreds of millions of people being taken up at once. Um, and men I love and men I care about um, and respect have taught me this verse, but it is, I don't believe, I don't see it. I just don't see it, just so you know. I don't believe we're going to be raptured from the persecution that's in here. We're about to see it unfold, and we're already seeing it unfold in these letters to the churches. Um, anyways, just a... Just a comment I wanted to give to you um, as we try and look at Revelation in maybe a different light than what, you know, some of the novels people have written have, have tried to teach us. We want to look to God's word. Um, so Revelation, I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter, Revelation 4, and then I'm going to read several verses into, into chapter 5. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and go quick. I'll take up too much time. Uh, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice uh, which I heard speaking to me like a, a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Let's stop there for a minute. And I've, these are some of my, this is four and five are my favorite, some of my favorite chapters. They might be my favorite chapters. And you probably heard me read this before. This is the throne room of God himself. John is there and he is describing him uh, kind of poorly. He continually says as or an appearance of or like this and he knows that his description is inadequate and it is. And so, you know, God's not an emerald. It's difficult to describe him evidently. I'm sure it will be. Sure it will be. This is the throne room of God who is completely in control. All creation worships him. All creation worships him. Those four creatures, you know, the face like a man, like an ox, this is a representation of all of God's creation. The ox is the, you know, the most powerful domesticated animal. The lion is, you know, the strongest of the wild animals. Man is the wisest, you know, of God's creations. And, you know, the eagle is the king of all, all flying creatures. This is all creation's representation, worshiping him. If you remember back when we studied Job, God begins to describe all these things he's created, and it's just these things. They, they say who I am. They're a testament to how powerful he is, and he is being worshiped right now. That song we sang, holy, 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 is being sung right now. Well, creation sings it right now at this moment. He sings it. So, um, we've still got a ways to go. So, um, so John sees this incredible thing happen, and then there is this scroll. There is a scroll that is in God's hand, and no one is found worthy to open it, and he cries like a baby. Um, he does, and he cries because this is the very will of God in his hands. Who is worthy to open this? Who is worthy to do the will of God? And no one can be found. Man has failed. No one is worthy. They cannot be found. So what happens in the rest of the revelation is in his hand in this scene. He has it in his hands. He has it in his hands. And it's about to unfold. Let's, we've got to keep reading. I've got to keep going. I'm short on time. Chapter 5, verse 5. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And one of the elders said to me, this is after he's been crying, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all creation, excuse me, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. All creation has turned to worship Jesus. These elders are the representation of all power on the earth, all of mankind's power on the earth, it all falls under his dominion. All of it. They worship Jesus. They worship Jesus. John is, is crying. Who will open the scroll? And then in comes Jesus. There he is. And the, the elder, the person who, who tells John don't cry, he says, he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah but then John looks, and it's a lamb standing as though slain. And then he walks up to God, which is crazy, and takes it out of his hand, takes the scroll out of his hand. That's crazy. That's never happened. That interaction doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture like that. He walks up to the Father and takes the scroll out of his hand. He is absolutely worthy. He has conquered. He is worthy. I want to talk for a second about this phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conqueror. He is the king. But he is the lamb that is slain. And John uses this. It is very appropriate and very true that God does this through paradoxes. It's what seems to be absolute defeat. He is conquered. He does it again and again this way. The Son of God died on the cross. That would be a, an utter defeat, you would think. What appears to be defeat is not. It is victory. It is absolute victory is what Jesus has. Absolute victory. And through what appears to be, I thought he died. And he's raised. And he, that message is given because these churches, Smyrna, the church we just talked about, the ones who Jesus said, be faithful unto death, it is the same. They appear to be losing and they will lose their lives. Jesus meant it when he said you have to pick up your cross and follow me. He meant it. They will die. They will die. And they will have victory here. 
Jesus died, he has victory here. Dominion is, is his here. And there's this tension, right? You know, he is reigning, but they are being persecuted. And it is, Terrell will probably talk about it next week. Uh, uh, you know, this tension, this conflict between two kingdoms. Because the kingdom of God is here. I mean, last week in this room, uh, in the morning, like, or was that the other week before? 15, 16 people got baptized. The kingdom of God is here, working, and yet there is persecution. And we live in this conflict, and so do they. And this is given to them. This is given to this church. They are to look to the Lamb, to the one who has conquered, to see his example. And so are we. So are we. You and I are called to look at this through persecution. We are called to look at it through persecution. And I know it's difficult to identify with Smyrna, but this happens today. I mean, I, I saw an article today on, I, I use like BuzzFeed, and yesterday ISIS releases a video uh, of them killing about 20 Ethiopian Christians. They shot them in the back of the head. They executed them all. And then earlier in February, they beheaded uh, maybe maybe a dozen Ethiopian Christians. Uh, we may have a hard time identifying with Smyrna, but the Ethiopian church doesn't. They're being killed. They're being killed. You know, this, these verses, what you see unfold in Revelation applies to them as well, not just this church. And is it meant to be decoded? It's meant to be encouraging. Because it is true then, and it's true now, it'll be true again later. You know, you're worried about who the beast is, uh, who the Antichrist is. The beast is Rome. And the Antichrist is Domitian, the emperor at the time. That's who it is. And there have been many. There have been many, and will be many. There will be. You know, if just a few years ago, people were worried. Is Osama bin Laden the Antichrist? Yes, he is an Antichrist. And now there's a new one, the Caliph of, of, of the Islamic State. There are, have been many, many, and will be. John says in his first letter, there have been and will be many Antichrists, is what he teaches. And we are to stand firm. We are to stand firm. We are to conquer. Now, I know that maybe it feels difficult to identify with that, but he tells every single church to conquer, doesn't he? He tells that, that Laodicean church, the one that's filthy rich, he says, you're to conquer. Well, wait a minute, they're not being chased around with swords and spears, just like you and I are being chased around with, with guns. We're not being taken captive by ISIS. But they're told to conquer. And they are to conquer what? All these issues that they have. Their wealth is not supposed to conquer them. What they have is not supposed to conquer them. The Ephesian church, the divisions they have, the love that they lost, they're supposed to stand on top of that. They're supposed to conquer it. That is persecution from Satan. Think of Job. Think of our study in Job a few weeks ago. Job was persecuted by the devil himself. He lost his family. He lost all of his goods. He got sick. He's covered in boils. He's being persecuted by the devil for his faith, but no, one, no one's chasing him. No one's chasing him with a, you know, a sword because he's a Christian. He's being persecuted for his faith. And some of us will face that as well. You'll lose your job. You'll get cancer when you're 40 and you don't want to die. It's going to happen to people in this room. It will. And you will be faced with this. You are called to conquer. You are called to look at this throne room. Jesus reigns. He is in power. All authority is his. That is what we are called to look at is Jesus. We are called to face persecution 
looking to him, the one who has conquered, because we will as well. Whatever the issue is, I don't care what it is. Most of you will never, your li- our lives will never be threatened like it is for some around the world. But other parts of this are very pertinent. They are issues that we are facing, we are told to conquer. And that is how we need to look at Revelation, a time of conquering, of standing firm. That is what it is about, and that is what we need to, how we need to look at the whole thing through, through the eyes of this church and the issues that these churches are facing and through the lens that Jesus is reigning over everything, no matter how crazy it is, no matter how crazy it is. Um, I know I've been all over the place. We've discovered a lot of scripture. I apologize for how there's a lot of stuff I couldn't cover. Hopefully Tara will answer some of your questions. Maybe. We'll see. Um, but, um, yeah, thank you for bearing with me through all this because it's, it's a lot to take in. I know for some of you it's like, I don't know anything about Revelation. That's a lot. And I, I apologize, but it's, it's the best I could do. It's, uh, it's a very difficult subject. And I apologize if you know, if I've offended anybody, because I know I've said things that are completely the opposite of what you've been taught for some of you, some, some of what you even learned. So, um, but yeah, let's, let's continue to look at this through a lens of, of triumphing over persecution, of standing strong. That is what we need to do, is stand strong, to look to Jesus, worship him with the rest of creation.